Hello. You're listening to Before the Act, a series of podcasts about a groundbreaking moment in theatre and social history, as told by some of the wonderful women who were there. These podcasts were made during the coronavirus lockdown, and I caught up with people I haven't spoken to in 30 years on the phone. Hello. Hello, is that Katrina? Yes, Bev, how are you? Karen? It is. Is that Cyan? Yes, it is. Hello, how are you? I'm alright. They all have one thing in common. They witnessed and participated in the start of the fight against the notorious Section 28 and the founding of Stonewall, the organisation that would spend 15 years lobbying for its repeal. I recorded their personal memories alongside radio interviews and audio clips of real events. Our story is set in the summer of 1988. It's 7pm on June 5th. We're standing outside the Piccadilly Theatre in Denman Street in London's West End. There's the usual theatre crowd gathered and a group of beautiful men in dinner jackets and bow ties. Middle-aged women wearing posh frocks and some boyish lesbians and camp young lads holding tickets which are now changing hands for five times their face value. The theatre doors have just opened and the audience are jostling their way into the foyer. Inside the auditorium, the stage is set to showcase a cast of over a hundred performers. Lights have been focused and sound levels set during the day. A grand piano, sofa and chairs and a park bench are waiting in the wings to be set by an all-female crew. Huge speakers are piled high on either side of the stage. A Nobel laureate, a dame, a baroness, legendary theatre actors, BAFTA and Oscar winners are all cramped backstage alongside young drama students and alternative cabaret stars. A world-famous conductor and a cellist are sharing a dressing room with a world-famous opera singer. Next door is the cast of EastEnders and Brookside, and next door to them, an all-women jazz band and a well-loved TV detective. The atmosphere is exciting and terrifying, particularly for two young pop stars about to play their first ever live performance, unaware that they'll be awarded a Brit 21 years later. It's been a long day, and it's about to be one of the most significant but largely forgotten nights in LGBT history. I'm Bevere, one of the stage managers of Before the Act, the show that 1,200 people are piling into the Piccadilly to see. But I'm getting ahead of myself, because our story really starts back in January of 1988. I was sitting in a flat above an off-licence in Sidcup, Kent, listening to Third Ear, an arts programme on Radio 3. The House of Lords has just begun the committee stage of its discussion of the 1988 Local Government Bill. Not at first an issue of pressing interest to people in the arts, but Clause 28 of the bill, added during the committee stage in the House of Commons, has set alarm bells ringing among people in the theatre, the visual arts, the cinema, music, museums and libraries. As it stands, Clause 28 is intended to make it illegal for local authorities to promote homosexuality or to give money or assistance to anybody who does. 
An ad hoc arts lobby has been set up to oppose Clause 28. Prominent amongst those who have spoken against the clause is the actor Ian McKellen. So you would just like to see Clause 28 disappear altogether? Oh, yes, I certainly would, yes. I think it's, it's offensive to anyone who's, like myself, homosexual, uh, apart from uh, uh, the whole business of uh, what can or cannot be taught to children. In that completely understated way, Ian McKellen had just done the unimaginable and come out on national radio. And I was listening because I'd also come out within a year of being at drama school, along with around a third of my year, who, like me, were running away from home to be themselves. It was an intolerant time. The AIDS crisis was unleashing reactionary press coverage, ignorance and fear, which further fuelled a rise in rampant and state-sanctioned homophobia. The age of consent at the time for gay men was 21. Lesbian mothers had their children routinely taken from them and 75% of the UK population thought that homosexuality was wrong. And despite homosexuality being decriminalised in 1967, gay men were spied on and trapped into importuning with undercover police officers, meaning the number of gay men convicted of same-sex behaviour in 1988 was almost the same as in 1955. There was still a huge cultural battle to be won. Third year again. 21 years after the passage of the Liberalising Sexual Offences Act, is there now a greater, not lesser, intolerance towards homosexuals? In a signed editorial for the Sunday Telegraph, the newspaper's editor, Peregrine Worthorne, has suggested that there is. But, argues Mr Worthorne, responsibility for this renewed intolerance lies with those of liberal persuasion, and indeed with homosexuals themselves, who, he writes, have become a bold and brazen proselytising cult. I think the basic... Uh, feeling of uh, perhaps the majority of the British people is that it was quite wrong to persecute homosexuals and that that should stop in a civilised society. I think that as a result of the toleration, the decriminalisation of homosexuality, the uh, a faction of the homosexual community have seen fit, and I think very mistakenly, to say not only must this activity be permitted and tolerated, but it must actually be glorified and said to be uh, certainly the equal of the heterosexual life, if not the superior. And I think this is a deplorably ill-advised, because I think that it, 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 it was likely to, and I think it probably has, created a feeling of, of ill-will against homosexuality, which would otherwise never have existed. This ill-will, and the idea that homosexuality could be promoted, was at the core of Section 28. On the programme, McKellen challenged Peregrine Worsthorne, who responds by summing up much of Conservative England's fears. I would have to challenge you to quote the medical authority which supports you in assuming that people can be pushed into homosexuality uh, and, and as a teenager, mm -hmm. or indeed pushed into heterosexuality. It didn't work with me. I wasn't pushed into heterosexuality, and you clearly have not been pushed into homosexuality. Yeah, McKellen, you, must tell, you must tell me... Uh, what is your your basis for I, believing I, that? I, I will answer the question. I went to an English uh, boarding school where uh, homosexuality, perhaps faute de mieux, was a, a, a very much a, a practice, and 
it was touch and go, I think, with a number of people, whether they continued to be homosexual or, 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 or ceased, and that this could be very much affected by a glamorous master, by particular, uh, particular teaching. I mean, I, I do think that, that you can be affected in this way. It was clearly touch and go for Peregrine, who went on to say that he regarded homosexuality as a great misfortune, and I remember being struck by what a truly remarkable thing Ian McKellen had just done. Few people came out voluntarily in the 1980s. They were usually exposed and persecuted by the media. Rock Hudson, although suspected of being gay, wasn't publicly outed until 1985, when it was revealed that he was suffering from HIV. David Bowie and Boy George had flamboyantly declared their homosexuality, but there were few out mainstream lesbians. Dusty Springfield was in the closet, and it took until 1988 for Elton John to come out publicly. George Michael would only follow suit a further ten years later. It was a very brave and potentially career-changing admission for Ian McKellen to make. You didn't have to look far to see why he would take such a risk. At the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool in October 1987, Margaret Thatcher spelt out her education plans. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. Section 28 was the first piece of new homophobic legislation in a hundred years. It was met with uproar from LGBT activists. In February of 1988, three lesbian protesters abseiled from the public gallery of the House of Lords, a spectacular sight that made national headlines. Three women gay rights protesters caused pandemonium in the House of Lords when they abseiled from the public gallery onto the floor of the chamber. Black Rod and his staff quickly seized the demonstrators and escorted them out. The women were protesting that the Lords had approved a clause banning local councils from promoting homosexuality. We waited till the vote went through so that in no way were we going to change anybody's mind. We, we, did, we did the respectable bit and sat in there and listened to it and then they legislated against us so we thought, well, we'll just shake them up a bit and maybe make them think Actually, maybe... Actually, if you went in there with a rope, you didn't think we'll shake them up a bit. You went in there intending to do it all the time. No, we no, weren't going to do it. You just took a rope if, just for fun. Just the vote, if the vote was on our side, we were going to walk out. Later that year, lesbian Avengers went on to storm the BBC studios and chain themselves to newsreader Sue Lawley's desk, disrupting the six o'clock news. As the titles for the BBC's six o'clock news came on air this evening, two of the four women who invaded Television Centre burst into the studio. One chained herself to a remotely operated camera, the other to the desk where presenter Sue Lawley was introducing the news. Good evening, the headlines at six o'clock. In the House Stop of Lords, a vote is taking place now on a challenge to the Stop poll tax. Tory rebels have said that the tax As the headlines continued, presenter Nicholas Witchell sat on one of the women and put his hand over her mouth to muffle her protests. Senior television news executives rushed in with a hacksaw to remove the women's handcuffs. As all that was going on, Sue Lawley was left to apologise to viewers. And I do apologise if you're hearing quite a lot of noise in this studio at the moment. I'm afraid that um, we have rather been invaded by some people who we hope to be removing very shortly. In the meantime, if you can possibly ignore the background news, we'll bring the news as best we can. 
The women were taken to Shepherd's Bush Police Station but were later released without being charged. They said they were protesting against Clause 28 of the local government bill and were able to walk through Television Centre unchallenged. In Manchester, more than 20,000 people marched and attended a rally with speeches and music from Ian McKellen, Michael Cashman, Erasure and Tom Robinson. The British police are the best in the world I don't believe one of these stories I've heard About pretty policemen in leather and jeans Showing their leg through a split in the seams Leering at people and leading them on Then running them in when they start to respond The press all ignore it, they don't want to see Except when the case is a Tory MP So sing if you're glad to be gay Sing if you're happy that way Hey, sing if you're glad to be gay Sing if you're happy that way But what did this have to do with our show at the Piccadilly? Trina Cornwell, one of the founders of 20th Century Vixens, a women's production company, and the producer of Before the Act, explains. We decided we should maybe do something for the lesbian and gay community and this was all around section 28. From that stemmed the fact that we had to buckle down and raise a lot of money to form a group whose sole purpose would be fighting section 28. There was a meeting called which ended in chaos and it was packed, this room. And I remember Wendy kicking it off and saying, you know, this is what we have to do. And people were saying, oh, yes, we'll do a... We'll have a little disco down at so-and-so and we should be able to raise five pounds off that. And Wendy was saying, no, five pounds is nothing. You know, we've got to start thinking big. Trina set up 20th Century Vixen in the early 80s, and apart from producing and managing artists, they used to programme the London Lesbian and Gay Centre in Farringdon. At the time, much of the gay scene was separated along gender lines, with women and men-only spaces. And then there was the whole thing about, oh, it should be women only at the meeting, and the men should go, and then the men were saying it should be men only and they should go. And really, in the end, very little was achieved from that meeting. But it was just before the Manchester, the Lesbian and Gay March in Manchester, and um, a whole crowd were going up by train to Manchester, and we managed to get the Hot Doris Band before women to perform on the train all the way up, just for fun. And it was fun. Michael Cashman was very involved with the lesbian and gay movement. What I actually want to say, and it's the most important thing we must remember, and I want ordinary men and women to remember, that gay men and lesbians are ordinary men and women made extraordinary by society's focus on what we do in bed. Ordinary men and women, we 
demand the same rights, no more, no less, the same rights as other ordinary civilized human beings. So we made it our mission, if you like, to get hold of Michael off the march, take him somewhere and tell him what we had thought should happen. And he said, this is a really good idea. I think we need to talk to Ian McKellen about it. And so a meeting was arranged with Michael, Ian, Wendy and myself at that point. And it was then decided that we would put on a production in a West End theatre and that every single thing that was performed had to have been written by a lesbian or a gay man. Over 35 extracts from plays, poems, songs and sketches from 25 lesbian and gay authors were chosen. When I spoke to Katrina Buchanan from the Hot Doris Band, she recalled Ian McKellen approaching playwright Alan Bennett to allow his work to feature and appear in the show. No one was entirely sure, because he'd never said one way or the other. And they approached him and asked if they could use some of his work um, and the premise of it was that it's by, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual uh, creators. And, and Alan Bennett said that, you know, in my time, I've had a little bit of both and not enough of either. <laughs> Which, if you imagine that, then in Alan Bennett's voice is perfect, isn't it? Putting a show of this size together on no budget was a mammoth task and took months to prepare. Trina again. We had numerous meetings, obviously. It took a long time to get together, and it was a nightmare. We got the theatre, insisted that we paid, but it wasn't that expensive. We found a team of stage management so that they would be there to move things. And we had a team of, of people, a lesbian or gay people, who looked after all the artists. It was interesting in that until the day that it actually happened, nothing had been brought together. All over London prior to it were people rehearsing and doing this and doing that. And so bringing it all together was quite incredible. It was incredible, and so were the cast. Ian was ringing up sort of in the middle of the night saying things like, you know, I, I was wondering about whether Imelda Staunton would like to sing the suffragette song at the end of Act One. And we were saying, oh, yes, yes, you know. And then he'd say, I'm in crazy things, really. Everybody that was anybody was on that stage that night. In the weeks running up to June the 5th, I attended rehearsals all over London. I particularly remember Maria Aitken's house, where she and a young Rupert Everett, Richard Griffiths, James Wilby, Timothy West and Ian Charlson were running through Noel Coward's hands across the sea. And at Pineapple Dance Studios, Sheila Hancock was entertaining a young Gary Oldman as Mr Sloan, alongside her husband, John Thor. It was a logistical nightmare, and one that was put together over weeks. And as Trina says, with the whole show only finally coming together on the day of the performance. The whole thing just ran like clockwork. 
I mean, the fact we were dead after it was neither here nor there. Here's Mandy Short from the Hot Doris Band. We were four women who sort of did this quite um, traditional harmony singing, if you like, but we didn't dress like we were supposed to. We made sure that um, stuff that we sang reflected our own personal politics and, and the larger politics of the world. My recollection is that uh, Trina and Wendy had booked the Piccadilly Theatre to do this big event. That's my recollection, is it started off as a Wendy and Trina um, event. We were obviously always going to do it. And then I think several more of the more alternative cabaret people were going to take part in before the act. But it sort of got whittled down because it, it just got really big and famous. Let's go back to the Piccadilly Theatre. The Hot Doris Band have spent the day rehearsing in one of the theatre bars. I asked them about getting involved in the show and how it felt on the day. Cyan Kent remembers the atmosphere in the theatre on the morning of the show. It was like something that happened in in a Hollywood film, in a sense, wasn't it? You were just kind of part of something. You knew you were part of something. didn't quite know what it was, but you knew you were part of something. I think it was just rammed backstage with anyone who was anyone again it was just there were just people all over the place i asked katrina what she remembered about the tech and the dress rehearsal i was about 24 and just thinking i just didn't i mean i remember thinking oh gent all right but i also felt kind of it was you know i hadn't obviously it was i i i had no sense of what that show was like because we did our bit and then it was everyone on off, get out the fucking way because it was such a colossal show. I don't know. Well, so we finish, curtain comes down, and we've been the warm up act for Tom Stopper. Karen Parker, part of comedy duo Parker and Klein, was also sitting in the auditorium watching the day's events. In the sound check, I just remember the pet shops boys, they had all these speakers in the, in the actual auditorium and the loud of that and they were really nervous because I think it was their first live gig they did I think being in the lift with Stephen Fry because he was um, introducing us and he was so nervous we kind of got there for our sound check and then we stayed because I remember making my hair get bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> like with, 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 with curlers everyone had curlers in and things like that I just remember seeing all these really famous people walking around with hair rollers in and terribly nervous. And I, and I just thought, I need to get my hair bigger. It's now 7.25pm on June the 5th, 1988. The house lights are dimming and Michael Cashman, nervously waiting in the wings, is about to make his entrance onto the stage of the Piccadilly. He will introduce before the act and the first performers the Hot Doris Band. Ladies and gentlemen, take your seats. Tonight's performance is about to begin. This podcast was created by Bev Eyre, Tim Brunston and Lou Muddle with the kind help and generous support of Trina Cornwell, Cyan Kent, Katrina Buchanan, Mandy Short, Karen Parker and Angie West of Queer Bee Films. Before the act was a benefit show to counter the effects of Section 28. It was devised by Michael Cashman, Sean Mathias, Ian McKellen, Stephen Oliver and Martin Sherman. 
It was produced by 20th Century Vixen Promotions and was directed by Richard Eyre. Join me for the second in this series of podcasts. For more backstage gossip, some legendary performances from the night itself, and a look at the legacy of Before the Act and its influence on the development of Stonewall, the organisation which would go on to successfully lobby for the repeal of Section 28. For further information, check out our webpage, beforetheactpodcast.com.